Section 1 of Anton Chekhov and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nigel Franklin. Anton Chekhov and Other Essays by Lev Shestov. Translated by John Middleton Murray and Samuel Kotelyansky. Anton Chekhov, Oration from the Void. Résigne-toi, mon corps, dans ton sommeil de brute. Chekhov is dead. Therefore we may now speak freely of him. For to speak of an artist means to disentangle and reveal the tendency hidden in his works, an operation not always permissible when the subject is still living. Certainly he had a reason for hiding himself, and of course the reason was serious and important. I believe many felt it, and that it was partly on this account that we have as yet had no proper appreciation of Chekhov. Hitherto, in analyzing his works, the critics have confined themselves to the commonplace and cliché. Of course they knew what they were wrong, but anything is better than to extort the truth from a living person. Mihailovsky alone attempted to approach closer to the source of Chekhov's creation, and as everybody knows, turned away from it with aversion and even with disgust. Here, by the way, the deceased critic might have convinced himself once again of the extravagance of the so-called theory of art for art's sake. Every artist has his definite task, his life's work, to which he devotes all his forces. A tendency is absurd when it endeavors to take the place of talent and to cover impotence and a lack of content, or when it is borrowed from the stock of ideas which happen to be in demand at the moment. I defend ideals, therefore everyone must give me his sympathies. Such pretenses we often see made in literature, and the notorious controversy concerning art for art's sake was evidently maintained upon the double meaning given to the word tendency by its opponents. Some wish to believe that a writer can be saved by the nobility of his tendency. Others feared that a tendency would bind them to the performance of alien tasks. Much ado about nothing. Ready-made ideas will never endow mediocrity with talent. On the contrary, an original writer will at all costs set himself his own task. And Chekhov had his own business. Though there were critics who said that he was the servant of art for its own sake, and even compared him to a bird, carelessly flying. To define his tendency in a word... I would say that Chekhov was the poet of hopelessness. Stubbornly, sadly, monotonously, during all the years of his literary activity, nearly a quarter of a century long, Chekhov was doing one thing alone. By one means or another, he was killing human hopes. Herein, I hold, lies the essence of his creation. Hitherto it has been little spoken of. The reasons are quite intelligible. In ordinary language, what Chekhov was doing is called crime, and it is visited by condign punishment. But how could a man of talent be punished? Even Mihailovsky, who more than once in his lifetime gave an example of merciless severity, did not raise his hand against Chekhov. He warned his readers, and pointed out the evil fire which he had noticed in Chekhov's eyes. But he went no further. Chekhov's immense talent overcame the strict and rigorous critic. It may be, however, 
that Mihailovsky's own position in literature had more than a little to do with the comparative mildness of his sentence. The younger generation had listened to him uninterruptedly for thirty years, and his word had been law. But afterwards, everyone was bored with eternally repeating, Aristides is just, Aristides is right. The younger generation began to desire to live and to speak in its own way, and finally the old master was ostracized. There is the same custom in literature as in uh, Tierra del Fuego. The young, growing men kill and eat the old. Mihailovsky struggled with all his might, but he no longer felt the strength of conviction that comes from the sense of right. Inwardly, he felt that the young were right, not because they knew the truth, what truth did the economic materialists know, but because they were young and had their lives before them. The rising star shines always brighter than the setting, and the old must of their own will yield themselves up to be devoured by the young. Mihailovsky felt this, and perhaps it was this which undermined his former assurance and the firmness of his opinion of old. True, he was still like Gretchen's mother in Goethe. He did not take rich gifts from chance without having previously consulted his confessor. Chekhov's talent, too, was taken to the priest, by whom it was evidently rejected as suspect. But Mihailovsky no longer had the courage to set himself against public opinion. The younger generation prized Chekhov for his talent, his immense talent, and it was plain they would not disown him. What remained for Mihailovsky? He attempted, as I say, to warn them, but no one listened to him, and Chekhov became one of the most beloved of Russian writers. Yet the just Aristides was right this time, too, as he was right when he gave his warning against Dostoevsky. Now that Chekhov is no more, we may speak openly. Take Chekhov's stories, each one separately, or better still, all together. Look at him at work. He is constantly, as it were, in ambush to watch and waylay human hopes. He will not miss a single one of them. Not one of them will escape its fate. Art, science, love, inspiration, ideals, choose out all the words with which humanity is wont or has been in the past to be consoled or to be amused. Chekhov has only to touch them, and they instantly wither and die. And Chekhov himself faded, withered, and died before our eyes. Only his wonderful art did not die. His art to kill by a mere touch, a breath, a glance, everything whereby men live and wherein they take their pride. And in this art he was constantly perfecting himself and he attained to a virtuosity beyond the reach of any of his rivals in European literature. Maupassant often had to strain every effort to overcome his victim. The victim often escaped from Maupassant, though crushed and broken, yet with his life. In Chekhov's hands, nothing escaped death. I must remind my reader, though it is a matter of general knowledge, that in his earlier work, Chekhov is most unlike the Chekhov to whom we became accustomed in later years. The young Chekhov is gay and careless, perhaps even like a flying bird. He published his work in the comic papers. But in 1888 and 1889, when he was only 27 and 28 years old, 
there appeared the tedious story and the drama Ivanov, two pieces of work which laid the foundations of a new creation. Obviously a sharp and sudden change had taken place in him, which was completely reflected in his works. There is no detailed biography of Chekhov, and probably never will be, because there is no such thing as a full biography. I at all events cannot name one. Generally, biographies tell us everything except what it is important to know. Perhaps in the future it will be revealed to us with the fullest details who was Chekhov's tailor, but we shall never know what happened to Chekhov in the time which elapsed between the completion of his story, The Step, and the appearance of his first drama. If we would know, we must rely upon his works and our own insight. Ivanov and the Tedious Story seemed to me the most autobiographical of all his works. In them, almost every line is a sob, and it is hard to suppose that a man could sob so, looking only at another's grief. And it is plain that his grief is a new one, unexpected, as though it had fallen from the sky. Here it is, it will endure forever, and he does not know how to fight against it. In Ivanov, the hero compares himself to an overstrained laborer. I do not believe we shall be mistaken if we apply this comparison to the author of the drama as well. There can be practically no doubt that Chekhov had overstrained himself, and the overstrain came not from hard and heavy labor, no overpowering exploit broke him. He stumbled and fell. He slipped. There comes this nonsensical, stupid, all but invisible accident, and the old Chekhov of gaiety and mirth is no more. No more stories for the alarm clock. Instead, a morose and overshadowed man, a criminal whose words frighten even the experienced and the omniscient. If you desire it, you can easily be rid of Chekhov and his works as well. Our language contains two magic words, pathological and its brother, abnormal. Once Chekhov had overstrained himself, you had a perfectly legal right, sanctified by science and every tradition, to leave him out of all account, particularly seeing that he is already dead and therefore cannot be hurt by your neglect. That is, if you desire to be rid of Chekhov. But if the desire is for some reason absent, the words pathological and abnormal will have no effect upon you. Perhaps you will go further and attempt to find in Chekhov's experiences a criterion of the most irrefragable truths and axioms of this consciousness of ours. There is no third way. You must either renounce Chekhov or become his accomplice. The hero of the tedious story is an old professor, the hero of Ivanov, a young landlord, but the theme of both works is the same. The professor had overstrained himself and thereby cut himself off from his past life and from the possibility of taking an active part in human affairs. Ivanov had overstrained himself and become a superfluous, useless person. Had life been so arranged, that death should supervene simultaneously with the loss of health, strength, and capacity, 
then the old professor and the young Ivanov could not have lived for one single hour. Even a blind man could see that they are both broken and are unfit for life. But for reasons unknown to us, wise nature has rejected coincidence of this kind. A man very often goes on living after he has completely lost the capacity of taking from life that wherein we are wont to see its essence and meaning. More striking still, a broken man is generally deprived of everything except the ability to acknowledge and feel his position. Nay, for the most part in such cases, the intellectual abilities are refined and sharpened and increased to colossal proportions. It frequently happens that an average man, banal and mediocre, is changed beyond all recognition when he falls into the exceptional situation of Ivanov or the old professor. In him appear the signs of a gift a talent, even of genius. Nietzsche once asked, Can an ass be tragical? He left his question unanswered, but Tolstoy answered for him in the death of Ivan Ilyich. Ivan Ilyich, it is evident from Tolstoy's description of his life, is a mediocre, average character, one of those men who pass through life avoiding anything that is difficult or problematical, caring exclusively for the calm and pleasantness of earthly existence. Hardly had the cold wind of tragedy blown upon him than he was utterly transformed. The story of Ivan Ilyich in his last days is as deeply interesting as the life story of Socrates or Pascal. In passing, I will point out a fact which I consider of great importance. In his work, Chekhov was influenced by Tolstoy and particularly by Tolstoy's later writings. It is important because thus a part of Chekhov's guilt falls upon the great writer of the Russian land. I think that had there been no death of Ivan Ilyich, there would have been no Ivanov and no tedious story, nor many others of Chekhov's most remarkable works. But this by no means implies that Chekhov borrowed a single word from his great predecessor. Chekhov had enough material on his own. In that respect he needed no help. But a young writer would hardly dare to come forward at his own risk with the thoughts that make the content of the tedious story. When Tolstoy wrote The Death of Ivan Ilyich, he had behind him war and peace, Anna Karenina, and the firmly established reputation of an artist of the highest rank. All things were permitted to him. But Chekhov was a young man whose literary baggage amounted in all to a few dozen tiny stories hidden in the pages of little-known and uninfluential papers. Had Tolstoy not paved the way, had Tolstoy not shown by his example that in literature it was permitted to tell the truth, to tell everything, then perhaps Chekhov would have had to struggle long with himself before finding the courage of a public confession, even though it took the form of stories. And even with Tolstoy before him, how terribly did Chekhov have to struggle with public opinion? Why does he write these horrible stories and plays, everyone asked himself. Why does the writer systematically choose for his heroes situations from which there is not and cannot possibly be any escape? What can be said in answer to the endless complaints of the old professor and Kati, his pupil? This means that there is, essentially, something to be said. From times immemorial, 
literature has accumulated a large and varied store of all kinds of general ideas and conceptions material and metaphysical to which the masters have recourse the moment the over-exacting and over-restless human voice begins to be heard this is exactly the point chekhov himself a writer and an educated man refused in advance every possible consolation material or metaphysical not even in tolstoy who set no great store by philosophical systems will you find such keenly expressed disgust for every kind of conception and ideas as in chekhov he is well aware that conceptions ought to be esteemed and respected and he reckons his inability to bend the knee before that which educated people consider holy as a defect against which he must struggle with all his strength and he does struggle with all his strength against this defect but not only is the struggle unavailing the longer chekhov lives the weaker grows the power of lofty words over him in spite of his own reason and his conscious will finally he frees himself entirely from ideas of every kind and loses even the notion of connection between the happenings of life herein lies the most important and original characteristic of his creation anticipating a little i would here point to his comedy the seagull where in defiance of all literary principles the basis of the action appears not to be the logical development of passions or the inevitable connection between cause and effect but naked accident ostentatiously nude as one reads the play it seems at times that one has before one a copy of a newspaper with an endless series of news paragraphs heaped upon one another without order and without previous plan sovereign accident reigns everywhere and in everything this time boldly throwing the gauntlet to all conceptions in this i repeat is chekhov's greatest originality and this strangely enough is the source of his most bitter experiences he did not want to be original he made superhuman efforts to be like everybody else but there is no escaping one's destiny how many men above all among writers wear their fingers to the bone in the effort to be unlike others and yet they cannot shake themselves free of cliche yet chekhov was original against his will evidently originality does not depend upon the readiness to proclaim revolutionary opinions at all costs the newest and boldest idea may and often does appear tedious and vulgar in order to become original instead of inventing an idea one must achieve a difficult and painful labor and since men avoid labor and suffering the really new is for the most part born in a man against his will a man cannot reconcile himself to the accomplished fact neither can he refuse so to reconcile himself and there is no third course under such conditions action is impossible he can only fall down and weep and beat his head against the floor so chekhov speaks of one of his heroes but he might say the same of them all without exception the author takes care to put them in such a situation that only one thing is left for them to fall down and beat their heads against the floor with strange and mysterious obstinacy they refuse all accepted means of salvation 
Nikolai Stepanovitch, the old professor in the tedious story, might have attempted to forget himself for a while, or to console himself with memories of the past. But memories only irritate him. He was once an eminent scholar, now he cannot work. Once he was able to hold the attention of his audience for two hours on end, now he cannot do it even for a quarter of an hour. He used to have friends and comrades. He used to love his pupils and assistants, his wife and children, and now he cannot concern himself with anyone. End of section one.